So the first paragraph reads this way. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. Now what I want to do this evening, because it's a a relatively short paragraph, what I want to do is basically uh, two things. First, I want to give a a longer introduction to this this whole chapter and try to draw some connections between the confession uh, as a whole to this chapter. And then in the second portion, which may even be shorter, we'll look at this first paragraph. Uh, So if you have one of the, the individual copies that's not the in the hymnal, you can turn to the table of contents and just to be able to, to put your eyes on it. Some of you will remember back when we started this study of the confession, leaning on something that was said by James Renahan, I told you that the confession is a document that must be read not merely in a consecutive manner, but the way he phrases it is sort of back and forth. Things that are stated early in the confession assume things that are stated and clarified later, and things that come later assume things that were stated earlier. In other words, it doesn't read like a novel where you just come into information um, in in a straight linear fashion. Much like the Scriptures themselves, if we demand that one single place say all that there is to be said about the information that's revealed in that place, then there's going to be a lot that goes undiscovered. The Bible is not a systematic theology textbook. And while we often refer to the confession as as working like a systematic theology, it was not written like a systematic theology. The, The framers of our confession assume that we're going to be interacting with it rather than just analyzing it. Again, this is kind of how the Scriptures work. It is to be interacted with. It is a living word. It's not something that we just simply come and, and, and analyze. And so we have to allow documents like this, the Scriptures and the Confession, we have to allow these documents to uh, reveal their own interplay rather than we coming and imposing an extra-biblical analytical tool to say, here's how we're going to analyze the information. And so for that reason, every time we come to a new chapter, I take a moment to briefly remind everybody of where we are in the overall structure of the confession. At the same time, though the confession does not read like a novel, it also does not read like a cookbook. It's not just a a jumbled collection of various recipes all thrown into uh, a, a catalog, it does have a general theme. And again, uh, following Renahan, the general theme, like the Bible, revolves around the idea of covenant, which is the overflow of the idea of man interacting with his creator. And I hope to prove that in just a few minutes. The largest section of our confession, chapters 7 through 20, we've called simply 
the covenant. All of these chapters share a relationship with the covenant, specifically what the Bible calls the new covenant or what theologians call the covenant of grace. In chapters 7 through 9, there's sort of a covenant overview or introduction. We could say that there we meet the maker, the mediator, and the mission of the covenant. In chapters 10 to 12, we saw the specific works that are God's, God alone works in this covenant, what I called or what we've called one-sided covenant graces, things that God does all of Himself in the covenant, effectual calling, justification, adoption. In chapters 13 through 18, we saw what we called two-sided covenant graces, those areas where man, having come into the covenant, now begins to work along with God in the fruits of the covenant. Sanctification being an overarching theme. Saving faith, repentance unto life, good works, perseverance, assurance of grace. These are things where we act because God has worked in us. We come this afternoon to the final smaller section of this larger section on the covenant which deals with the means of receiving the covenant. It seems like both this morning and this evening we're, we're at a, a dividing place of little sections and big sections. These last two paragraphs, 19 and 20, deal with how we come to be partakers of the covenant of grace. To put it in a more experimental way, think of it like this. We have looked, beginning at chapter 7, with the maker, the mediator, and the mission of the covenant. We've looked at the one-sided covenant graces, effectual calling, justification, adoption. We've seen the two-sided covenant graces, sanctification, faith, repentance, perseverance, good works, assurance. We've seen all of that, and now we come to the end and we're asking, okay, how does someone come to be a partaker of this covenant so that all of those blessings are mediated to me? Now to answer that question, I want to... Go back to chapter 7 that deals specifically with the covenant by itself. So turn to chapter 7. And hopefully you'll be able to see the connection with this and chapter 19. Chapter 7, paragraph 1 says, The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their Creator, yet they could never have attained the reward of life, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which He hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Now that paragraph is answering the question, why covenant? First, we have this Creator-Creature distinction. The distance between God and the creature is so great. God is our creator. We are his creatures. That's our relationship by nature. Genesis 2.7 says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God made the man. Isaiah 45 and verse 12. God says, I made the earth and created man on it. He's the creator, we are the creatures. There is a great distinction, a vast expanse between creator and creature, and yet there is a relationship, creator, creature. There's a distinction that assumes a relationship. Secondly, we see that obedience to God 
is obligatory simply because of that relationship. That fact alone. He's creator. We're creature. We are obliged to obey. Although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to Him as their creator. Again, based on the creator-creature relationship alone, we owe Him obedience. And I would add to that, worship. We are bound by that relationship to render to Him obedience and worship because of who He is, because of who we are, and because of the relationship. Luke 6, 46. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see, there's something implied there. If someone is a Lord, then obedience is rendered to them under obligation. It's assumed you will obey one that you, you consider as Lord. In Malachi 1, verse 6, God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is my fear? Now, think about this. We could argue from, the, from these greater relationships to the lesser. Here we have father and servant, or father and son, servant and master, but we're just talking about creator-creature, not father and servant, just, just creator-creature. If a son owes his father honor and a servant owes his master honor, ought not a creature owe its creator honor and obedience? This is assumed. Obedience to God is obligatory by the creature. But then we see this language that, that implies that there is an opportunity for the creature to move beyond that relationship. Going beyond that base level creator-creature relationship to something greater, something supernatural. Yet, they could never have attained the reward of life. Now, rewards are not rendered to someone who merely does what they're obligated to do by nature. Rewards are typically given for going beyond what is required by nature. So this idea of life as a reward was not owed to Adam. Adam doesn't deserve life. It's called a reward of life. Now this couldn't have been the physical life that Adam already possessed because he already possessed it. The idea implied here, and the Scriptures convey this as well, is that there's something more being offered to Adam than what he had. Or it's not a reward. Now, without going through Genesis 2 and 3, we know that the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden. We, we see in Genesis 3.22, the idea with the tree of life is that if one ate of that tree, they would live forever. That tree was present in the Garden of Eden, yet it had not been eaten of. The language of that text implies that eating of that tree would have sealed Adam and Eve in their state forever, regardless of their condition. Now, Genesis 3.22 comes after the fall. Now think of this grace from God, this mercy. Let's block off the way to the tree of life, lest they reach out their hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever in that fallen condition, lest they seal themselves in that corrupt condition for eternity, block off the tree. The idea is that eating of the tree of life would have sealed them in whatever state they were 
when they ate it. Now, the opposite of that would have been also true. Pre-fall, if there had never been a fall, if they would have eaten of the tree of life, the reward of life would have been being sealed forever in a glorified state, eternally sealed in a glorified state. The tree of life pointed them to that. It was there, reminding them that God has something greater for them than just what they're doing. That's a reward of life. This reward of eternal life could not have been won by Adam simply by doing what he was obligated to do by nature, or it's not a reward. That chapter in the confession goes on to say, they could never have attained the reward of life but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. Adam had no ground to stand on before God in which to come and say, hey, I would like to advance higher. Let's just say I'll obey you forever. Luke 17.10 says, When you've done all that you are commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If Adam had continued in obedience all his days for eternity, he would have merited nothing. He would have only done what was his duty. He would not have merited life or advancement. He would just have continued to be as he was. And so for Adam to be rewarded, to earn a reward and advance to a higher state, God, the Creator, would have to stoop down and promise a reward to Adam. And the confession says, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. That is the voluntary condescension of God to offer Adam eternal life on the condition that he met certain terms. God expresses that by way of covenant. A covenant is the expression of God's condescending to man, offering man the opportunity for advancement from his present state to a better one. If man meets the terms set forth by God, God will provide the advancement. But God has to be the one to come and do that because if we do all that we are supposed to do, we're still unworthy servants. We have not merited anything. Why do we say this is condescension? Again, because God doesn't owe man a reward. God is coming down, condescending when He offers to man any kind of reward for any obedience. Any obedience. Don't eat of that tree. What do you give me if I don't eat it? I'm not going to give you anything. Just obey. That's, that's assumed. That is obligated by nature. But if God goes beyond that and says, if you'll do this, I'll actually go further and bless you, that's condescension. And why is this a covenant? The covenantal arrangement allows for stipulations to be set in place and ensures that the promise of reward is formally held out in an unchangeable manner. In other words, when a covenant is made, man always has something to look out to, a, 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 an object of faith, which is God Himself, to trust in as they obey God, looking out towards those things which have been promised. The covenant is simply the formal declaration that God will do certain things on certain conditions because by nature, God is not required to do so. If it were by nature, a covenant would not be needed. Okay? Now, thinking along those same lines, we ask, what kind of covenants could God potentially make? What, what, you know, when it comes to terms and stipulations, what are the options? What kind of covenants? There are two options. 
The first is a covenant of works. God can condescend and say, if you'll do blank, I'll respond by giving you blank. That's a covenant of works. Do this and receive the reward. The second one would be a covenant of grace, where God says, I will do blank, and then I will give you a reward of blank. Works or grace? Both of these ideas, works and grace, are ways that a man could possibly come into possession of the covenantal terms set forth by God. And I would argue this is the only way that a creator and a creature can have any relationship beyond that is by covenantal condescension. These are the two ideas, works and grace. You can either agree to perform what God requires and therefore earn the reward, or you can humbly receive what God offers and receive the reward as well. Those are your two options. Now, another way of phrasing these ideas of works and grace, some more theologically rich terms, would be law and gospel. Now, we come to chapter 19 of the law of God. And then chapter 20, the gospel and the extent of the grace thereof. Two different ways set forth in which man can potentially participate in a covenantal agreement with God. And that's where we're, where we're headed. Now, as we open up these two chapters, they don't deal specifically or only with law in relation to covenant and grace or gospel in relation to covenant. They, they make those little connections and then they move on to deal with each of these subjects in their own right. But I just wanted to show that there is a connection to the idea of covenant, law, gospel, or, or works and grace. These are the only ways that man can interact with his creator and the creator can interact with his creature. So then that's the first half, the first part. That brings us to chapter 19, paragraph 1, which simply introduces us to the idea of the law of God. Now you can turn back to chapter 19 if you're not already there. The first thing that's mentioned in this paragraph is what theologians call natural law. We've, we've covered these things before in the past, but it's been a while. Natural law. The paragraph says, God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. In other words, God created Adam with an internal, we could say moral compass, we could say legal code, by which he would conduct himself morally. Now somebody would say, well, I don't remember reading about that in Genesis 1 or 2. Well, the, the idea is gathered from several places. First, there are explicit statements like Genesis 1.27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We ask, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Now, we know that a lot of people have a lot of weird ideas of what that could possibly mean. But at least a couple of things are mentioned in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.24 says... Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What is the, what is the likeness of God? It has something to do with righteousness and holiness. 
Colossians 3.10 says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. There's the image of the creator, knowledge. So the image and likeness of God, at least from a moral perspective, has to do with righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. Righteousness would be moral rectitude, uprightness. Ecclesiastes 7.29, see? This alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What does that mean? What does it mean that God made man upright? Is is there a standard for uprightness? Is is there any way we could possibly know what that looked like? That's that's righteousness, moral uprightness. Holiness is, is consecration and devotion of himself to God. Adam was consecrated and devoted to God by nature. Then there's knowledge, the overall aim of the mind or the inner man toward godliness. John Calvin, commenting on Colossians 3.10, describes this image of God as integrity of the whole soul so that man reflects like a mirror the wisdom, righteousness, and goodness of God. That would be the, the knowledge aspect of it. Nehemiah Cox describes this image of God as perfect harmony of his soul with that law of God which he was made under and subject to. We might call this the moral or ethical imago Dei, image of God. Some moral aspect of it. Is there more? Maybe. But there is at least this, the ethical or moral aspect of of the image of God. Now, if God is going to create a being which bears his own moral image, he would have to in some way inscribe on the soul of that man a standard of righteousness and holiness and knowledge, what we call law. We call that standard law. That revelation would be God's own moral and ethical rectitude. If Adam was truly upright, Ecclesiastes 7.29, God made man upright. If Adam was truly upright and still a rational creature, then God would have to instill in him by nature an internal law of uprightness. He was not a robot. He was rational. He had the ability to reason and to think and to obey in such a way that mirrored the moral and ethical standards of God. Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. So there are explicit texts that point us to this idea. But then there's also just logical deduction that we can make from the Bible's anthropology, the the study of man that the Bible gives us. We typically think of only that study of man after the fall, but it works pre-fall as well. Adam, before he fell into sin, had no taint of sin at all. Adam was under none of what we call the noetic effects of the fall. Nothing for Adam to overcome in the area of thinking. No, no, in in the area of learning. When it came to ethical effects, there was no, no moral stain on Adam's character. And Adam was created an adult man, fully upright in every way. No, no stain of sin. If all that God created was good, and Adam himself was good and upright, then we can deduce by this that his, by his very creation, he had the law of universal obedience written in his heart. A law that was natural to him. Because he was a human being, bearing God's image, there were moral and ethical traits inherent in Adam. 
Adam did not wonder about the morality of murder. Somebody says, you shouldn't kill your neighbor. When, 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 when Cain killed his brother Abel, Adam didn't scratch his head saying, I mean, I don't see any problem here. What's the issue? Because he was created in the image of God. Adam did not wake up from his sleep and see one wife and say, one? I was kind of hoping I could get two or three or four. He had the transcript of God's own moral character written on his own rational soul. That's what it means to be, at least partial what it means to be, in the image of God. Romans chapter 1, which describes men after the fall, actually assumes that all this is true as well. This is what we call natural law. Law of universal obedience written on his heart. He's a human being by nature. He follows this moral code. The second thing that's mentioned is what's called positive law. Laws, when you think of positive, adding and subtracting, addition, laws added to that natural law. Positive laws are laws given which are not inherent to mankind. They are not in themselves natural. Obedience to positive laws is a part of the natural law. But the the positive laws in themselves are not natural. What is this positive law? The confession says a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Was there anything inherent about eating from this tree, or anything inherently evil about eating from this tree? Anything written on Adam's heart by nature that said that tree is is a no-no? No, there wasn't. But God did forbid the eating of it in relationship to Adam's role as keeper of the garden. God added this rule. By nature, you've got a moral compass. I'm going to add to that one more. Don't eat of that tree. Because of this positive law and the natural law, which requires obedience to the positive law, Adam was created by nature under legal obligations to God. In other words, Adam was created... A creature under or by a creator. This, these legal obligations that the confession says by which he bound him. That is by this law, Adam was bound. There were legal obligations placed upon him. Because he was a human being, he was bound by natural law. Because of his special place at the head of the human race, he was also bound by that particular precept of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was bound to obey obligated as a creature to obey the Creator. But the confession goes even beyond Adam, by which he bound him, Adam, and all his posterity. That is all of Adam's posterity. Every person that would come from Adam's line, which would be everybody. The law, which was natural to Adam because it was rooted in the image of God, 
does not ever change for any human. As long as human beings bear the image of God, the natural law remains the same. Why? Again, it's, it's rooted in the image of God. Has God changed? Has God's moral or ethical standards changed? No. Then that natural law never changes. All men, by nature, are bound by the same natural law, by which He bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Personal, meaning every individual person alone, by themselves, bound to obey. Nobody gets to hold hands. Nobody gets to walk really close behind somebody else and their obedience. Every single individual must obey this law. Everyone is bound to obey this natural law, personally, Entire obedience, that means absolute obedience to the whole of the law written on Adam's heart. Exact obedience means exactly to the specific demands and prohibitions of that law written on Adam's heart and every man's heart. And perpetual obedience. Ongoing for every one of us throughout our whole lives. We are bound to entirely obey all of this law. And... Perpetual in that it's ongoing for all men in all times, in all places. Always. This is what we refer to as the abiding validity of the, we typically just say moral law. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But the abiding validity of the natural law written on Adam's heart. All people, everywhere, personal, entire, exact, perpetual obedience. All men in all places at all times are bound by the same law of nature that was written on Adam's heart. Everyone. Now, one text that proves this, because there, there are people who disagree with that. One text that, that proves this is found in Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, where Paul says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And, also, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Notice this language. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now what does it mean that they're, they're without the law? Gentiles are without the law. It doesn't mean that they have no moral compass. The end of the section proves that they do. What it means is they don't have an externally given law like the Jews had. The Gentiles never received tablets of stone or a moral code or a, or a, a covenant book of laws. They never received any of those things. But by nature, Gentiles do what the law requires. And that proves that they are a law to themselves. In other words, Gentiles to whom God never came and gave a law do by nature what the law requires. Why? Because the law was written on their hearts. They didn't have to receive it on tablets. It was written on their hearts by nature. All men are bound by this law. All men are without excuse before God. Why? Because the law is written on their hearts internally. Another proof of that reality is throughout the Old Testament when God is judging the nations. Why is He judging them? Because they were breaking the law. What law? The moral law. The law written on the heart of Adam. God doesn't go to the nations and punish them for not obeying the, the Feast of Booths. 
It doesn't punish them for not observing the Day of Atonement. They're punished for idolatry. They're punished for breaking the moral law of God because these things are written on their hearts. All men, all places are bound by this law. And God promised life upon the fulfilling of this law. Here's where we come back into the idea of covenant. God promised life upon the fulfilling of the law. You say, well, I don't see that in the text. Well, we'll see in a minute the threat of death upon the breach of it assumes a promise of life upon the obedience of it. And again, the, the presence of the tree of life also points us to a promise of life that's being held out. It's there. It's, it's an option. It's available for them at some point. He promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it. The breach of what? The law. Natural law or positive precept? Yes. Since obedience to the positive precept, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, since obedience to the positive precept presupposes obedience to the natural law, why would I obey you? Oh yeah, you're my creator and I'm your creature, so I'm going to follow this rule. That pre, the one presupposes the other. That means to break the positive precept concerning the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would have been to break the natural law also. Genesis 2, 15-17, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Death upon the breach of the law. Now, when we come into this, especially in reading the first three chapters of the Bible, and seeing what the rest of the Scriptures have to teach us about those three chapters, we might say, well, that seems strict. That seems a little unfair. You know, here's Adam, you know, minding his own business, and all of a sudden God imposes this rule and threatens death upon the breach of this law. Well, God was coming and promising a reward based on Adam simply doing what he was commanded to do, which he was obligated to do by nature. In other words, God condescended and made an agreement with Adam, do what you are created to do by nature, obey me, and I'll bless you. I'll give you a reward. But also, in addition to that, the confession states it this way. God endued him with power and ability to keep it. See, Adam, again, he was not subject to the fall. This is pre-fall. He did not have any inner corruption. There was no sinful tug within him, no war within him. Adam of all of the human race except for Christ Jesus was the most suited to receive this law and stand as a federal representative for the whole human race. That's what Romans 5 teaches us. The confession, paragraph, or chapter 9, paragraph 2, says that man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was unstable so that he might fall from it. And that chapter, or that paragraph, also references Ecclesiastes 7.9. God made man upright. In other words, these conditions into which Adam is, is, is created and the situation that God creates when he condescends and makes this agreement are the most favorable conditions possible in, hu in human history for a covenant of works. You take the very best of men, 
prior to the fall. Make an agreement. I'll give you life. Just do what you're created to do. The most favorable conditions. So Adam, as our representative, stood at the head of the race as the most favorable candidate for acting in our place before God and maintaining our good standing with God. Now think about this. In conclusion, I just want you to think about this God. God promised life to Adam upon the fulfilling of the law. God promised Adam something that Adam did not deserve based on Adam's conformity to what was natural to him from creation. God did not owe this to Adam. God condescended to bless Adam even though, having obeyed, he would have only done what was his duty. And God was pleased to manifest this condescension by way of a covenantal agreement. What does that mean? God bound Himself to reward the creature once that creature had performed what was already His to perform by nature. While the covenant of works, or what some refer to as the covenant of creation, while it was not the covenant of grace, and that this is a difference between us and others, it still shows us how good God is. From ancient times, God has took it upon Himself to come down and bless His creatures and, and, and offer reward. I'll bring you higher than creature and, and higher than that, that base relationship. So as we consider God's law, let's be sure that we have not and do not fall into the trap of hearing the word law and immediately being turned off as if the law of God were something inherently evil. The law of God is good if one uses it lawfully. Not bad. I'll close with a quote that I just I heard recently and I probably used some other quotes. I've heard some good stuff recently on the law just out of providence. But this is, this is a good one that I think we need to allow to resonate with us. This is so contrary to our culture. So contrary to evangelicalism as a whole. J. Gresham Machen said, A low view of the law always brings legalism into religion. Now that's the opposite of what we've all been taught. You talk about the law, you start mentioning the law, people are going to be legalistic. There's nothing legalistic about obeying God's laws. What, 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 what's he saying? You reduce God's law, whose law are you going to live by? Your law. That's legalism. A low view of the law always brings legalism into religion. A high view of the law makes man a seeker after grace. So we look at the law, we understand the law, but then we're going to get to the gospel. These are ways that God has held out to men. Thankfully, we live uh, in, in the time of the gospel and God's offering the, the covenant of grace. Um, but, but let's guard against that. Let's, let's guard against a, a sinful... Revulsion, repulsion to the law of God. Uh, let's stand and sing the doxology and we'll be dismissed.